you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 1023. 1023. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to a French scientist, Jean-Baptiste Leroy, and said, Our new constitution is now established. It has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except... Death and taxes. You know the end of that one, do you? This quote is quite memorable. It has stood the test of time. 200 years later, you still know it. And we understand Franklin's points. Those two things are quite certain. But the Apostle John might argue that they are not the only two things that are certain. In fact, that there are other things as or more certain than taxes, of which John turns our attention to in the closing verses of chapter 5. Here, John revisits several familiar themes as he states what Dr. John MacArthur calls five Christian certainties. These are five assurances that we can know. You'll remember that in 1 John, the, the theme of knowing is a, a, a significant theme throughout his writing. It was to combat, he wrote uh, this theme and emphasized this so much, to combat what was the Gnostic teaching. The Gnostics believed that there was a need for special knowledge in order to be saved, so John is writing to say, actually, we can know things through God and through his word and through his spirit, as we already have seen. One commentator says, John wrote to bolster the assurance of the reader by counteracting false teaching. So, to John's certainties. Verse 13, we see the first, which connects to the preceding verses. So, look with me back to verse 11. To, to kind of get the run in. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Then verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here in verse 13, John is giving to us the purpose of his writing. I write these things to you who believe that you may know. The certainty. What does he want them to know? He wants them to know that they have eternal life. Who are the they? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Christians. Believers. Believers in the name or in the, the person of the Son of God. These are those who, who had passed the tests of assurance that John has already given. The test of righteous living, the test of loving your brother, and the test of obeying God's commands. 
John writes so that Christians may know that they have eternal life. He wanted them to have assurance. This word know is used some 30 times in John's first epistle. Of five chapters, 30 times, I think we get the point. This word means a settled or absolute knowledge. When John is talking about knowing something, he's talking about being certain of something. John wrote in order that these believers would have assurance or certainty about their salvation through Christ. No more doubting. No, no more looking at other people and wondering, well, well am, I, am I saved? That's, that's what was happening at this, this point. People had left their church. They were spreading false teaching. And these Christians were wondering, well, if they're Christians, I'm not sure what I am. John's writing so we don't have to live in doubt anymore. Because of our certainty of eternal life, of life in the Son, we also have certainties in our prayers. Look at verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. And if we ask anything, that if we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Here John speaks of the confidence or, or the boldness in our prayers. We can have that. Why? Because of the assurance that we have in eternal life. David Allen says, prayer is the God-ordained way to get what we need. You can have certainty that prayers are answered because of your assurance of your relationship with God. There's a promise here. The promise is that God hears and answers your prayer. And therefore, the rest of verse 15 says, and we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? Yes and amen. No amens to that. Yes and amen. But there is a qualification, isn't there? There is a condition that John puts on this. And we see it in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. According to his will. Which means that God does not promise to answer every one of your prayers. He does not. He does not promise to, to give you everything you want. There is no, there's no reason for us to believe that that is true. Elsewhere in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, John writes something very similar. And Jesus says that if you ask in my name, same concept, according to my will, According to his will, God's will, or in the name of Jesus, those would be synonymous. Those are the prayers that God hears. Prayers in line with God's will are assured to be answered. And then, and only then, we can know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So how do we pray in the will of God? How do we pray according to his will? Timothy Keller says that if, if we knew what God knew, we would pray what God wants us to pray. Right? We, we would want the things that he wants. So how do we know his will? How do we know what he wants? Well, knowing God's will is a matter of discernment. And the discernment first begins by knowing his word. 
His revealed will. Sometimes we're all very interested in knowing God's will for us in our life, but we're not actually obeying what God has already told us. God has told us very clearly several things, many things. And if we begin there, we'll be in a good place to then know what is God's will in other areas of our life. Much of our problems with following God's will stems from not knowing God's word. But we might argue, the Bible does not tell me which job to take. It does not tell me what car to drive. It does not tell me which person to marry. No, you're right. It does not tell you specifically those things. So we need help. And so not only has God given us his word, but he's given to us his spirits. His spirit that the, the, the Apostle John writes in the Gospels that, that leads us and convicts us and guides us and teaches us. The word and the spirit is how we learn God's will in order to pray according to God's will. The word and the spirits. We have them both. We have no reason to, to wonder. We have no, no reason to, to fret. We have the word. And Christian, you have the spirits. Therefore, God has given to you what you need in order to what? Pray according to his will. But under all of that, we must ask ourselves, do we even desire God's will? Maybe some of our problem is that we don't actually want what God wants. Are we even willing to obey that will? The only way we would is if we understand that God's will is what is best. Right? The, the only way we're going to obey the will of God consistently is if we believe that God knows better. Some of us think we know better. Some of us in our prayers, we want to educate God on what he should do in this scenario. As though our perspective is somehow greater than an eternal being. After all, prayer, as one theologian writes, is not so much getting God to pay attention to our requests as it is getting our requests in line with his perfect and desirable will for us. What if prayer was more about you and I getting in alignment with God than get, getting God in alignment with us? The Christian can be assured that God hears and answers our prayer. You can be assured of that if your prayers are prayed according to his will. But we should know that when God answers, the answer may be yes. It may be no. It may be delayed. It may be something entirely different than what you are asking for. And we see examples of this in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is imprisoned and the church is praying for him. You might remember this miraculous story that the angel comes to him in prison and he wakes him up and apparently no one else wakes up. I'm a pretty heavy sleeper, so that probably would have worked for me too. But he wakes him up. The chains fall off. He tells him to get up, put his shoes on, get his cloak, and he takes him out. And he goes to the house where these people are praying. Right? The prayer was surely for him to be released. And here, what? The answer is yes. 
Yes, God answered the prayers of these people. But we come to chapter 16, and, and Paul is on a missionary journey. And he is praying about where he should go next. And he's praying that he would go into to Asia. And God tells him, no, don't go into Asia. You're not allowed to go into Asia. And what does Paul do? He doesn't go into Asia. God said no. In John chapter 11, Mary and Martha, their brother is sick. And they're begging Jesus to come to heal him. And Jesus doesn't come. Not right away. He delays the answer. Now the answer was eventually yes, we know. But it wasn't at the moment. It was wait. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has a thorn in the flesh. Something that's, that's been irritating him. Something painful. Something he desired to, to go away. He prayed for it three times to go away. And what was the answer? It wasn't just no. It wasn't yes. It wasn't wait. It was something altogether different. It was my grace is sufficient for you. I'll answer that prayer. This is how I'll answer it. I'll give you the grace to handle it. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he delays. And sometimes he says altogether something different. In each of those things, it is God's will. God's will may be no. You may be praying for something and it may be God's will that it is a no. That doesn't mean that God didn't hear you. It does not mean that God didn't answer you. It does not mean that God did not give you the request that you needed. It means that God's will might be different than what you believe it to be. Christians who pray according to God's will can have the certainty that God hears them and their prayers will be answered according to his will. You can have that confidence. And again, if you knew what God knew, you would want what he's doing. You would want his will. We would want his will. Well, John then moves to verses 16 and 17, and he gives an illustration of praying according to God's will. Look at it in verse, start in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, Paul is talking about, excuse me, John is talking about prayer here. He's talking about uh, praying and answers to, to our prayers. And he gives this illustration here uh, of what we would call intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is when, when you pray for someone else. You pray on the behalf of someone else. We see it with the word ask. And he asks something. He shall ask and God will give. This is here specifically he's praying for a Christian. We see if anyone sees his brother, so it's a Christian, involved in a sin, committing a sin, not leading to death. The sin, according to John, is a sin that does not lead to death, meaning it is not punishable by death. Now, if, if death here is physical death, then the life that's going to be prayed for in a moment must be physical life. But, but this is intercessory prayer. When we're praying for someone who we see committing a sin. Now there, there is an important uh, point that John makes here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin. It's not if anyone hears about their brother committing a sin. It's not if Facebook tells you someone's committing a sin. It's not the gossip 
or rumor mill of someone's sins. It's if you see someone committing a sin, what is your responsibility? And your responsibility, according to John, is to ask God for help. Ask God for this one who is caught in sin. James Montgomery Boyce says that Christians in the will of God will pray according to the will of God on behalf of those who are away from God. And here's the promise, another promise. God hears and will give him life. Again, if if the death is a physical death, the, the life is a spiritual life. So what do we understand? We understand that prayer matters. That James chapter 5, verse 6 is true, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you King James people, that was King James for you. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <clears throat> so we pray. We pray. You, you see someone in sin, what do you do? You go tell somebody else about it? Or do you pray? You pray for them. There is, again, a qualification here at the end of verse 16, for the praying. And he says this, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. There is some sin that results in the punishment of death. Now, if you're listening, you might want to say, what is that sin? We're going to be sure not to do that one, right? And some people want to categorize sins in such a way. But it would seem that the church at this time would have known what John was talking about. Because John gives no explanation. He does not tell us what the sin is. There are, of course, many different ideas about this verse. It is a difficult verse. First off, who is John actually talking about here? We would, I would believe that he's talking about Christians because he's talking about a brother in the beginning of the verse. It may be referring to a professing Christian, like those who had left John's church. If we think about the context of the false prophets that John had written about earlier, maybe it's someone who who is now an apostate, and John is saying that 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 is a sin that, that leads to death. Or it may be, as I just said, a true believer caught in sin. Now, we, we don't know the specifics here. We could conclude with Warren Wearsby that John is not referring to a specific sin, but a kind of sin. Or as another theologian says, this is an ongoing, willful, unrepented sin which, quote, is committed by a Christian that leads to physical death as a result of God's discipline. Now, do we have any foundation for such a claim? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. In the New Testament, we see this. We went through a study in the book of Acts some time ago. And in chapter 5, there is a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira sold a possession. They sold land and they brought money to the apostles. And they offered the money as an offering. But they lied and they kept some of it back, claiming that they gave all that they had received. The consequence for lying to God and to the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 5, was death. Both of them instantly died. 
at separate times, but instantly upon being confronted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us instructions about communion. And he says that we ought not to take of the body or the blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner. And that because some have, they are sick and some sleep. That means they have died because of taking communion in an unworthy manner. What are we to understand here? Sin is no small matter. What is your responsibility? What is my responsibility here as we read verses 16 and 17? Again, Warren Wearsby helps us. If a Christian, he says, sees a brother committing committing sin, he should pray for him, asking that he confess his sin and return to fellowship with the Father. But if it is in his praying that he does not sense that he is asking in God's will, as instructed in the previous verses, then he should not pray for the brother. Warren Wiersbe cites Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear them. Now, this is not to absolve us from the call of other places in the Bible to act. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We have a responsibility, yes, but God's will may not be for us to pray for those in sin in a continuous unrepentant condition. Well, as John continues in verse 17, he writes to guard against any misunderstandings about sin. He just talks about sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. And then verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John's basically saying, just to be clear, in case you're going to start a rank sin and say that this sin is good and this sin is not as bad, All sin is wrongdoing. All of it is. Whereas it is true that some does not lead to immediate physical death, it does not make it less sin. John concludes verses 19 through 21 with three more certainties. Not only can we be certain about our eternal life, not only can we be certain about our prayer, prayers being answered, but thirdly, we can be certain about victory over sin and Satan. Verse 18, and we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. The first promise we see here, or the first victory we see here is over sin. John does not mean that every every person who's been born of God or every believer never sins. That's not what he says. He says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Everyone born of God does not habitually or indefinitely continue in sin. If they did, they would prove that they were not born of God. If you just flip back to chapter 3 in 1 John, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident that we are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? But whoever does not practice 
righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's a, an assurance, a certainty that we can know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That God has enabled us to repent. He's given to us his spirit to convict us of sin. The, continua- the continuation of a sin calls into question our confession. The second victory we see in the rest of verse 18, as John says, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. The second victory is over Satan. The he, the pronoun he here, but he who was born of God speaks most likely or or probably to Jesus. He refers to Jesus who was born of God. What does Jesus do? He protects him. He protects the one who has been born of God. He protects the believer. It is Jesus who protects the believer from the evil one, who, who cannot, who, who does not and cannot touch him. Or, or, or this could be said, lay hold of him. Well, remember in chapter 4, verse 4, the greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus protects us. We can know that we are secure, eternally secure in Christ. That's what the protection is for. This verse is not to be used to say that you're never going to get sick. You're never going to get in a car accident or nothing bad's going to happen to you. That's not the protection that John is referring to here. John is speaking about our spiritual condition, that Jesus protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We are secure eternally in Christ. We have victory over sin and over Satan. And that's not all. Look at verse 19. And we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So not only do we, we know, uh, not only do we know in verse 19 that we belo- 18 that we belong to God, but in verse 19, let me say that again. Not only do we know in verse 18 that we have victory over sin and Satan, but in verse 19, we know that we belong to God. John contrasts here the word we, which is talking about the believers, with the whole world. That's talking about unbelievers. Unlike the unbelievers who are under or, or lie in the power of the evil one, not so with those who are from God. We belong to God. God possesses us. That is our position. We belong to God. In John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We are children of God. We belong to God. That's a certainty. That's that's an assurance that the Christian has today. You belong to God. You do not belong to the devil. You do not belong to this world. You belong to God. Well, finally, we see the fifth assurance of spiritual understanding in verse 20 and 21. And we know. See that again, verse 18, verse 19, now verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Son of God. We know that the Son of God has come. That is the incarnation. That is God becoming flesh. That is the very event which we are anticipating yet in just about a month, celebrating once again the the arrival of Jesus to this earth. This is how we can know. This is how we can have spiritual life because, spiritual understanding, because the Son of God has come. And he's come so that we can know him, so that we have knowledge of God. It is through Christ, it is through his spirit now in us that we can have this understanding. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The way that we can know God, the way that we can know that God is true, the way that we can know that God is in us is spiritual understanding brought about by the Son of God and the Spirit of God in us. We can know him who is true, him who is genuine, him who is authentic, he who is real, who is that? That is Jesus. Not only do we know him, but we know that we are in him. Here, John keeps coming back to this idea of of abiding, of abiding. Uh, Verse 18, we may know that, know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. We in him, him in us. Chapter 3, verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. For those who keep his commandments, who have, fe- have fellowship with God, that's what we understand. John chapter 14, verse 23 says that if anyone loves me, Jesus says this, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We belong to God. Spiritually, we can know that we are in God and that God is in us. John then ends where he began in verse 13 and really where he began this epistle in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 with eternal life. The end of verse 20 says, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Here John is contrasting the the true God with idols, with false gods that seek to replace the one true God. But those false gods we know can never deliver. They can never fully deliver what they offer. Only God, only the one true God can. Again, James Boyce says, knowledge of God and union with God is life. Or what he calls complete salvation. And you can know that today. You can have that confidence today. Maybe like me, you have experienced times of doubt in your life. Doubts do not need to be the end of your story. For the Christian, our doubt, we can know, is not of the Lord. It is not of the Lord. Christian, if you're doubting your salvation this morning, that is not from God. Why? Because God wants you to know. C.H. Spurgeon writes this, We should not have been commanded to give diligence to make our calling and election sure if it were not right for us to be sure. 
I am sure that it is right for a child of God to know that God is his father and never have a question in his heart as to his sonship. You can know. You can know. And as you do know with certainty, this obviously has impact on your life. What would it look like for you to have this confidence? How would this affect the way you live? How would it affect your relationship with God? To have that kind of confidence in your salvation through Christ. What would it do to your obedience to God's commands? What would it do to your love for God and for others? What would it do for your fears and your anxieties? To know with certainty that you have, that you possess eternal life, that you are a child of God. The late J.I. Packard, in his book, Knowing God, writes this, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are fully possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. Do you have that assurance this morning? Again, the Apostle John says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if you have the Son this morning, you have every reason for confidence. Every reason for assurance. Every reason to have boldness in your prayers, to know who you are before God. But if you do not have the Son, you do not have confidence. Sure, you're worried about the afterlife. Sure, you're worried about this life. Sure, you're worried whether or not God is smiling on you. Sure, you're worried whether or not condemnation is your future. Sure, you are. And rightly so. But you don't have to. Because whoever has the Son has life. If you don't know the Son this morning, let me tell you, the Son is the Son of God who came as a baby, born to a virgin named Mary. He would go on to live the perfect life and die the death that you and I deserved. Die for our sins died the death that, that our sins deserved. In our place, he took our penalty so that those who would repent and believe might know the forgiveness of God, might know that they have eternal life, might have confidence that they stand before God as a child, no longer an enemy. You can know that today too. If you would but come to Christ in repentance and faith, recognizing him as the only way to the Father. Your sins have separated you from God. God demonstrated his love for you by sending his son to bring you back. As we pray now, if, if you need to talk to God, we invite you to do that even this moment. Father, thank you. Thank you for the confidence that we can have through Christ. This is not confidence in us. This is not confidence in our faith. It's confidence in the object of our faith. That is Jesus. 
And with that comes great certainty of life that is eternal. God, I pray today that each who sit here might know that assurance today. If they did not walk in with that assurance, God, I pray they would walk out with that assurance. Even as in these moments, they talk to you. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God, even in this moment, would your spirit work, we pray. Would you give us confidence this week? Remind us of who we are, who you say we are. And we'll give thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.